That's great, though. You know, don't you, uh, don't you feel good that the kids are, uh, that there's songs like this that, you know, imprint into the hearts and minds of young people the truth about the fact that there is a God and that when we do, uh, you know, sink to the bottom, there is solid ground that we can find and so on. And uh, I just uh, appreciate everybody who serves, especially with our young people. And today, you know, is our ministry fair after church today. You're invited to come on down and have a cup of coffee. And uh, a number of our ministries have uh, tables and booths around the gathering hall. And we all uh, have opportunities for people to step up and to serve. And especially uh, with our young people, there's plenty of opportunity to uh, use the gifts God's given you and, and to impress the kids. And they so need it in the world in which we're handing them, right? Uh, to be able to know God personally. Well, I'm sure you realize this, but um, whenever a person becomes a Christian, right? As soon as a person becomes a Christian, uh, they become a citizen of two worlds. We live in two worlds. We have one foot in the physical, visible world that we're all aware of, and our other foot is in heaven. We become citizens of heaven, our earthly existence, but we're made alive, we're born into a spiritual world, a spiritual existence as well. We're no longer just citizens of earth. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, uh, Paul writes to that church and he says, Our citizenship is, not will be someday, but our citizenship is today in heaven. We live with one foot in the world and one foot in heaven. Our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform these lowly bodies of ours, right? Um, Transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We're citizens of this heaven. We already are. Uh, We read from Ephesians uh, about how Uh, We are already seated in the heavenly places and how God's going to use us in the future to display the glories of his grace to the whole angelic world forever and ever. Look at the trophies of my grace, you and I. And uh, so we're citizens of these two worlds. And I think this is what prompts Jesus. You're probably familiar with this. Jesus said, you know, to the Pharisees at one time, listen, render unto Caesar what Caesar's. But render unto God what's God's. Don't just live in one world. You live in both worlds. And there's a tension that always is created when we live between these uh, two worlds. Uh, Because we're citizens of two worlds at the same time, we have to learn to live by faith, not just by sight. We live in a world that, of course, operates by sight. And faith is really the only alternative to that limitation. Uh, I think when you think about this, regular people, as we called them last week from Hebrews um, chapter 8, regular people who are outsiders with God, who don't know God, uh, always talk like this, seeing is believing. When I see it, I'll believe it. The only problem is, by the time you see it, it'll be too late. Seeing is believing. Insiders, people who know God, understand, no, believing is seeing, just the opposite. It's when I believe God that God opens my eyes to be able to see this spiritual world that he's a part of and that he calls us into. Um, In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul prays for this church, and 
And uh, he says in the 17th verse, I'm praying for you that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. I would say a Christian has four eyes. Uh, Two to live in this world and two with our eyes on the world to come. Two with our eyes on the spiritual world that God reveals to us. So for the rest of the world, uh, seeing is believing. But for us, it's when we believe, it's when we exercise faith, it's when we trust God and take him at his word that God enlightens the eyes of our hearts and we're able to see. Believing is seeing. It's just the opposite of the way the world lives. And so faith becomes the means by which God gives us access to our heavenly reality. When you live only by sight... uh, you ask the question, if you live only by sight, how far can you see? Well, you can only see to the end of your life. You can only see till death, right? You can see as your life unfolds and then you die. If you live by faith, how far can you see? You can see into eternity. You can see into the past. You can see where you came from. You can see God reveals uh, through our faith. He opens the eyes of our heart to see all the way into eternity. And so, When you have faith and you exercise faith and you begin to uh, read the word of God, you begin to realize that really, you know, what life has always been about is that God wants people to approach him. God wants people to know him. We were made for God. We were made in his likeness and we were made for his purposes, for his uh, glory. He wants us to seek him. He He wants to give sight to us through faith. We were made for him. And so in the Old Testament, as soon as God led the people out of Israel and into the wilderness, uh, God prescribed uh, what was called the tabernacle. And it was a place where people could come to connect with God. And it was always at the center of the camp, wherever they wandered all around in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, The tabernacle was prescribed by God as a place and a way for people to connect with him. And even though the people could only get so close, they could only enter the outer court, and the priest who represented the people could only get a little bit closer into the holy place, and the high priest could only get a little bit closer than that, and only one time a year, and only for a short period of time, but he represented the people before God in this place that God had prescribed called the tabernacle. And, you know, when you read the Old Testament and you think about this, and by the way, you know, the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, was just last Wednesday. And it's really kind of sad for the Jewish people because it's so significant in their history, but there is no temple today. So for them to try to celebrate, if you watch the news and stuff and the interviews of some of the rabbis and whatnot, how this whole uh, ideal that God set up of the tabernacle has been reduced to people's own ideas. It's kind of sad if you know, you know what it was supposed to be and uh, what it is today. And, of course, it was all to lead up to Christ. But all of this is prescribed in the Old Testament in great detail because God wants people to connect with him. He wants people to come close to him, to approach him, to love him and know him and celebrate him and so on. So all of that Old Testament ritual, all of the Old Testament animal sacrifice that's pictured is a way for people to move close to God. Okay? And uh, I think when we read about it today, it seems rather cumbersome. I think, oh my goodness, there were all these rituals and all these specifications and all this particular uh, you know, um, uh, ritual that you had to go through. It all seemed kind of cumbersome, but you do get the idea very clearly 
that God is particular about how people approach him. You can't just in any old way approach God. You can't just sort of bully your way into his presence on your terms. You don't just dictate to God, you know, uh, I think I'll talk to the old man upstairs today, you know, like some people talk about it. You can't determine that God is very particular about how people approach him. Uh, mainly because God is holy and people are sinful. And so there's this sort of a prescription. It should be obvious to us that God had all these Old Testament requirements for coming close to him, all this minutia, this detail uh, that's in the first five books of the Bible, very, very detailed, very comprehensive about how to get along with God because these specifications were necessary because why? Because God is holy and people are sinful and there's this gap and we can't just, you know, come into God by our own terms. And so... Um, the holiness of God, I think, means two things in the Bible. It's revealed to us. Uh, first of all, the holiness of God uh, means that God is different. It means that he's set apart. It means that God is wholly other. He's not another one of us. He's not just an extension of us. A lot of people have created gods who are just an extension of their own ideas. But the true God, the holy God, he's different from us. He's altogether uh, different. He's um, not just another one of us. He's set apart, and that's what it really means. Uh, Moses, in Exodus chapter 15, asked God, you know, who is like you? And it's a rhetorical question. Who is like you? Who is like you? Who's, who's as majestic in holiness as you? And of course, the answer is nobody. And then Moses says, who's as awesome in glory as you? Nobody, right? Who, um, who can work the wonders that you work? Nobody. God is marked off as holy. He's different. He's not another one of us. He doesn't think like we think. He doesn't act like we act. He's altogether holy. And then the second part of holiness, he's not only different, but the second part of holiness has to do with moral purity. Uh, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. One of the ways that God is totally different from us is that he's unstained by evil. Uh, he is pure light. There's no darkness in him. In uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, it says uh, that you, God, are, are purer. You have purer eyes than to see evil. God can't even look at evil. Uh, you cannot look at wrong, you know. In uh, Leviticus, way back in the Old Testament, in Leviticus chapter 11, this is where it, uh, starts to, rubber starts to meet the road. Uh, notice what God says. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, to be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves. You be holy because I'm holy. You become like me. And Jesus picks up on this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, be perfect as your heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. The idea is that God invites us to connect with him, to come close to him, and when we do, we become so impressed with who he is that we want to ditch ourselves in order to be more like him. He's so superior. He's so uh, higher quality, and that was his plan. We are not like God, and uh, we don't see as God sees. You remember uh, in the Old Testament, Isaiah talks a lot about this. Isaiah uh, chapter 55, Isaiah says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. 
Uh, We can't come to God on our own terms. Uh, We cannot dictate our own way into God's presence. Faith is the only means by which we can have access to God. And faith is the means that God has given us access to him. And God is not on earth. He's in heaven, right? In Acts, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 7, we're reminded. Acts chapter 7 Uh, Verse 48, Uh, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet in the Old Testament said, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house are you going to build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? God is not confined to our existence. He's altogether holy. He's different. He lives in a different realm. He lives in heaven. The earth is his uh, footstool. Again, back in Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, there's a great verse in Isaiah 57, verse 15, where um, God tells us where he can be found, where he lives, where he dwells. And here's what he says. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, and who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and a holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and a lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God says, I dwell in two places. I live in a high and holy place far removed, way above the earth. And I live in the hearts of certain people, people who are humble, people who have broken hearts, people who are contrite, people who by faith are exposed to who I am and who in turn are uh, undone by who they are. And I move into their hearts. Uh, I live in two places. In Isaiah 66, again, uh, Isaiah is just full of these kinds of expressions from God. But in Isaiah chapter 66, the first couple of verses, again, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you're going to build for me, and what's the place of my rest? All these things my hands have made, and so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, and listen to this, who trembles at my word. He who has faith and who takes my word seriously and uh, allows their heart to be uh, formed and shaped. And uh, in John chapter 4, Jesus uh, picks up on this. Uh, You remember Jesus is with the woman at the well, and And the woman at the well is um, a Samaritan woman, and Jesus is Jewish, of course, and the Samaritans and the Jewish people disagreed about worship. And so um, in verse 21, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. The hour is coming, and now is here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. It's not about this mountain or that mountain anymore, but it's about our spirits. It's about a broken and a contrite heart. And so all that in preparation for Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews chapter 9, the uh, worship of the old tabernacle is compared with the worship of that now is in place through Jesus. And the author of Hebrews goes through great pains, I think, to 
uh, explain to us the contrast in the old worship under the old covenant and the old contract uh, to the worship in the New Testament under the new covenant, the new contract that is established in Jesus. In the Old Testament, worship started out in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a portable tent. It had a courtyard that was 75 by 150 feet. And then it had a tent-type structure that had a couple of rooms in it. In the New Testament, the focus of worship is on the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. It's on that which is permanent, not that which is uh, temporary. In Colossians, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, and uh, in Colossians chapter 3, he says, If you then have been raised with Christ... If you claim to be a Christian and you've experienced this new uh, being born into this spiritual reality, if you've been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above. Change the focus of your life. Don't just live by sight. Live by faith. Seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's where the sanctuary is now. That's where people come together with God now. Um, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. You have to make a choice. Every day we have to make a choice. We have to make, uh, where, where's our focus going to be? We have one foot in this world, but we also have one foot in, the, in heaven. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what's earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Um, in these you used to walk at one time when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. And don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What a great uh, challenge. You think about the average day that you live, the 24 hours that you live. How much of your life is focused on this life and how much of your life is focused on where God meets people up above in the heavenly sanctuary at, the, at this point in time? How much of our focus, how much of our attention uh, is caught up, you know? And so Paul urges us, Make the effort. Make the choice. Uh, the stuff of our earthly existence is in our face 24-7. But if we're going to live by faith, not just sight, we have to live with a different focus. And we spent the summer, you know, looking in Hebrews chapter 11 at these faith mentors, these people that God holds up for us and says, look, these are people who live by faith in the world, not just by sight. And we went through and we saw, you know, some of the characteristics of people who live like that, um, live out of the sanctuary where Jesus is, where God dwells. God dwells in two places. He's high and lifted up, and he lives in the hearts of those who are contrite. And so why was the old tabernacle, um, the old worship, replaced by the new? Why, why does our Bible have an Old Testament and a New Testament? Uh, what was wrong with the old way of meeting with God? And uh, what is superior about the new way and the New Testament? And are we taking advantage of what God has given us in Christ? Uh, so Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 1 puts it like this. 
Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Even the old tabernacle, the first place, the first, uh, the Old Testament, even the old tabernacle had a place for holiness, a place to come together with God. Uh, but it was earthly. Notice uh, what it says. Uh, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Not a heavenly place of holiness, an earthly place. Now, the problem with the tabernacle is it was temporal and God's eternal. It's not eternal. Uh, the old place where people were to meet God was man-made. You can read about it back in Exodus chapter 35 and 6 and so on. Uh, it was a place that was dedicated to God, right? But it was limited. It had limitations. It was temporal. It was earthly. It was Israel's tabernacle, not the world's. It was limited to one place at a time. Uh, it needed maintenance. Everything needed to be repeated time and time again. It was limited. And not only was it earthly and temporary, but it was never intended to be permanent. It was only a prototype. It was only a um, symbol of what was to come. Uh, look at the next few verses here. It was a tent. Verse 2. Uh, for a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table of uh, the bread and the presence, the bread of the presence. Um, it is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, uh, which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tables of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above it were cherubim uh, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, and of these things we cannot speak in detail. Um, the whole Old Testament speaks about the detail of each of these things, each of these pieces of furniture that were in these two rooms in the tabernacle. But the point is, they were all um, temporary, and they were all designed to be a prototype to point forward to the reality. Uh, we have a slide of the um, tabernacle, uh, how it was in the um, uh, tabernacle. The, there was this big courtyard, and then inside that there was this tent-type structure that had two rooms to it. And uh, these two rooms were divided by that veil, that curtain. It was actually three feet thick, this veil that separated the Holy of Holies uh, from the holy place. And uh, when we uh, read about this in the Old Testament, we read that, um, you know, these pieces of furniture uh, were, again, the prototype of what was coming. In Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 23 and 24, um, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. All of these things were pointing to Christ. And the center of worship now where people come together with God is between us and God himself. Okay? Uh, but in the Old Testament, these things, like, for example, the candlestick here, there's no windows in here. And so the candlestick provided the light. And uh, Israel was intended to be the light of the nations. That was God's intent. But who ends up being the light of the world? Jesus, right? And the candlestick, the light, points to the coming of Jesus. The table of showbread, the 12 loaves of bread that were on that were uh, representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And every Sabbath, 
uh, the priest had to go in, the priest on behalf of the people would have to go in and go to this table of showbread and they would take the 12 old loaves and they'd bring them out and they'd bring 12 new loaves in and it was all designed to remind the people that the presence of God was their sustenance. They're wandering around in the wilderness. They're eating manna that's coming from God. Remember this. The presence of God with us is our sustenance, right? And so, again, who's, who's the, uh, the men's Bible study studying uh, the Gospel of John this year on Thursday mornings, right? Uh, John chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am. Your, I'll be with you. I'll be your presence. I'll, you know, I'll sustain you. I'll be the source of what you need. Again, all of these things were pointing... Um, you know, this uh, altar of incense, right? Uh, on, the, on the one day, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest would come into, the high priest, not just any priest, but the high priest would come in here. He'd take um, uh, some of the coals off the incense altar. He'd take some incense, and he'd go into this Holy of Holies, and uh, he would shake the incense around, symbolizing the prayers of the people. Right? And then he would take blood, that was um, sacrificed by, by some animal, and he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, which was in the middle of this uh, table. It's just a little box, you know, almost three feet by three feet by three feet, and it had a golden um, mercy seat on the top that the, the blood would be sprinkled on, and underneath it, inside the box, were the Ten Commandments. And the thought was that when God would look down, he'd see the sacrifice of that blood, you know, and he wouldn't see the Ten Commandments. Like God's not going to see the Ten Commandments. But it's the way, you know, that the people uh, would be absolved of their uh, part of their sins, right? And so all of this was, uh, my whole point is just that this is all a prototype. In Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul, at the end of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. He's praying for us and has been since he rose for 2,000 years. He's there in the true sanctuary. All this was temporary. All this pointed to Christ. All this was uh, 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 so that nobody would miss it, right? And uh, it was uh, all prescribed by God uh, very specifically. But now Jesus is our mercy seat, and the blood that cleanses us doesn't just cover it, but it removes our sin. So in chapter 9 of Hebrews, again, as we uh, move forward in verses uh, 6 and 7, Uh, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, right? They changed the showbread. They uh, did the wicks on the lamp to make sure the light stayed on. Uh, They they would go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second section, only the high priest goes and only once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself... Because he's just a man. And listen to this. For the unintentional sins of the people. On the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the priest goes into the Holy of Holies, sprinkles blood on the mercy seat to cover the sins, the unintentional sins of the people. And by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic of the present age. So, and then according to this, 
uh, arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. So what's really going on when the high priest who represents the people, the people could never get that close to God, uh, the people could only be in the courtyard, and uh, the priest would represent the people in the holy place, and then only the high priest one time a year could go into the holy of holies. So here's the problem. The average person had no access to God, no direct access to God, no personal relationship with the living God. All they had was the priests. Uh, The priest alone got to go into, and only the high priest into the holy of holies, So here's the problem. Very limited access to God through the Old Testament system, right? It's not until Jesus dies that that three-foot-thick veil is ripped in half and Jesus provides a way into the very presence of God for the true believer. That we can live in a personal relationship with the living God. Extremely significant. Very, very different than the Old Testament. It's not until Jesus dies. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 27. But even more significant than that, it seems to me, is the second failure of the old worship system is that the forgiveness that's offered only had a limited effect. It had two problems, it seems to me. Number one, it only covered unintentional sins. What about intentional sins? What about stuff that you already know? that God asks you to do or not do, that you don't do or do? What about intentional sins? And not only that, but then the second problem with the old system is that it could never clear your conscience. You could never really relax in the presence of God. Your conscience could never really be touched at a deep level. So let me just comment, a couple of comments on that. Um, Just the sins done in ignorance. Did you see that in verse 7? I mean, it it seems to me uh, this is very significant. Only the high priest, only once a year, has to take blood and offer it for himself as well as everybody else, and only the unintentional sins of the people. Again, what about the intentional sins? Do you realize that in the Old Testament, um, there is no forgiveness for intentional sins? That's why you could never have a clear... What would you do if you knew there was no forgiveness for intentional sins that you've committed? You'd be in deep weeds, right? We'd be, we'd be really stuck. And um, Numbers, let me just uh, give you an illustration here. Numbers uh, chapter 15, and I was kind of surprised about this myself. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 27, if one person sins unintentionally, He shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be forgiven. That's what was going on in the Old Testament period. Verse 30. But a person who does anything with a high hand, which would be the opposite, would be intentional. A person who does anything with a high hand knowingly whether he's a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. There was no 
forgiveness for intentional sins. Now, you and I, because the Holy Spirit is in our life, we know a lot of what God has told us to do or not do. And none of us does everything God asks us to do. We intentionally say no. And we intentionally do what he tells us not to do. Do you know that in the Old Testament there's no provision for that? Like, here's an illustration. The next couple of verses here. You know, I'll just tell you, some guy is uh, on the Sabbath day going around getting firewood. You know, going to cook the Sunday turkey and uh, didn't have wood, so he goes around. And um, the people see it. The people report him to Moses. They don't know what to do with this guy because he's deliberately breaking the Sabbath law. So the Lord says to Moses, uh, the man shall be put to death. No firewood on Sunday. The man shall be put to death. And they all take the guy outside the camp and they stone him to death. Why? Because it's an illustration of somebody who's doing sin intentionally. There was no provision for that. David, right, in the Old Testament, commits adultery. He knows better. Then he goes and murders Bathsheba's husband. Right? There's no forgiveness for that. There's nothing that was provisional in the tabernacle worship, temple worship, that would forgive that. That's what Psalm 51 is about. Psalm 51, David, he knows he's got no options except to plead on the mercy of God. And I think it's in the 17th verse or something, and he says, you know, uh, God doesn't desire sacrifices. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. And David is really sorry, and he's repentant, and he's pleading with God, and he realized, God, either you have mercy on me and, and undeservingly forgive me, or I have no recourse. There is no sacrificial provision. Aren't you glad to be a Christian instead of being a Jewish person in those days? So the first problem was, you know, there was no forgiveness for uh, intentional sins. And so the result of that on a personal level is you could never really have a clear conscience. Do you have a clear conscience this morning? Do you live with a clear conscience? Do you realize the power that's available to us through the forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross? Do you live with a clear conscience? I think one of the ways that Satan constantly keeps us down and tries to drain us out is he keeps, he keeps us feeling guilty, he keeps us feeling angry about the past and what we've done. And we don't appropriate this, this radical forgiveness that's ours in the cross. And, and realize that we have this Jesus in the heavenly place right next to the Father pleading for us all the time. Hey, DeVries did it again. And here's Jesus saying, yeah, but I already covered his stuff. And God's like, yeah, okay, let's not forget. Clear conscience. Not because we deserve it, but because of the radical nature of the forgiveness that Jesus uh, won for us. If we look again in Hebrews 9, uh, 11 and 12... Uh, as we just kind of keep working through this passage, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, meaning Jesus' body, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, and, uh, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption securing eternal redemption. Wow, God's like, relax. Jesus won it all and did it all, right? 
securing this eternal redemption. He entered once and for all uh, by not ca- the blood of you know, goats and calves, but by his own blood. Verse 13, for if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls with the ashes of a heifer uh, sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish uh, to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much more valuable is the blood of Christ, right? Uh, To clear our consciences from dead works. You know what a dead work is? A dead work is anything you do to try to impress God. A dead work is anything you do to try to add to what Jesus already did for you. All it does is it shows you don't appreciate what Jesus already did. You don't value enough what Jesus already did. That you're going to try to add to it, right? You know, um, there are... Every religion in the world, except for Christianity, is different in this way. Uh, it's all about what I have to do in order to gain acceptance with God. And a lot of Christians, they understand the gospel, they appreciate what Jesus did, but then they fall back into this, but in addition to what Jesus did, like there's something else that I would have to add to what Jesus did. And every time we do that, we diminish what Jesus did. See? And so what I think the author of Hebrews 9 is pleading is, you know, appreciate, value what's been done for you. Live with a clear conscience and value it so much. Look at the end of that verse. Value so much that God has purified our conscience from dead works that you serve the living God. Serve the living God. How much better to serve God than to try to impress him? And you know, it just so happens that we have our ministry fair today, right? And that's what that's all about, is find a way to serve God, not to gain his acceptance, but in response to what God has done for you, in response to enjoying a clear conscience, in response to enjoying free access into the very presence of God. Serve the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our heads in your presence and we're so thankful for what you've accomplished. It's it's really interesting for us at this point in the time to look back into the Old Testament and see the tabernacle and to see how you laid everything out to point to Christ so that nobody would miss him. And Heavenly Father, it's easy for us to look back now and to see all these connections. But it isn't always so easy for us to understand what a great value our salvation, our forgiveness, the gospel really is to us. And I pray, Father, that you'll open our eyes, that the eyes of our heart will be able to see, that we'll understand that believing is seeing, and that we'll choose to focus on those things above. And as a result, our life here in this earth will be so radically transformed and different that we'll find ourselves with the priority of serving your purposes to your glory, for your kingdom's sake. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.